0: Open your Bibles tonight, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. I want us to take a break tonight from our study on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. We'll pick that up in a couple of weeks, but this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and so I thought it might be helpful tonight if we did a sermon that would prepare us for Palm Sunday. Somebody says, what is Palm Sunday? It's the Sunday before Easter. It was that day 2,000 years ago, the Sunday before the crucifixion on Friday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, and all the people were waving palm branches, and they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we call it Palm Sunday. Now, this coming Sunday, this Palm Sunday, is a doubly special day for the Christian community, because it is also Annunciation Day. Now, for those of us who have grown up in the Baptist church, we probably don't know much about Annunciation Day. But had we grown up Catholic or Lutheran or Greek Orthodox or some more liturgical church, we would know that Annunciation Day is March the 25th. You say, what, is, what, is, what does this mean? Well, we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December the what? December the 25th. And so we know that Mary had to be pregnant with Jesus for about nine months before he was born. So if you take December 25th and back it up nine months, you are at March the 25th. That was the day when the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, we don't know for sure that Jesus was born on December the 25th, and so we don't know for sure that it was March the 25th when Gabriel said that to Mary, but the way I look at it is this. Jesus was born on day, so we might as well celebrate it on December 25th, and same thing about Annunciation Day. Turn to Luke chapter 1. I'll show you what I mean. This is going to be a special day. Annunciation Day and Palm Sunday have not happened on the same day since 1956. Tell you how long ago that's been. And it won't happen again until 2029. That's 11 years from now. I'll be 40 years old when it happens again. I don't know how old you'll be. But in Luke chapter 1, look in verse number uh, 30. Then the angel, that is Gabriel, we read in verse 26 that it was Gabriel who came to Mary, and he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. And so that happened nine months. Mary was in Nazareth at the time, and this happened nine months before Jesus was born. And so this coming Sunday, is a doubly special day. It's Annunciation Day in the back of our minds, even though not many sermons will even mention that, because you can't hardly preach on that and then preach on Palm Sunday. But in the back of your mind, just remember what happened on that day, and also remember this was the day when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem. Now turn to Luke 19, and I want you to see some verses here about what happened when Jesus was riding that donkey in, and had come down that Palm Sunday Trail and come into the city of Jerusalem. in verse four, Or he was coming into the city. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. As he drew near, verse 41, Luke 19, 41, he saw the city and wept over it. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know that a little chapel has been built on the, on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And it's, it's in the shape of a teardrop. And it was built there to commemorate this occasion when Jesus, coming into Jerusalem, he looked over the city, and he started to weep, and he started to cry. Now, why would he have been crying? Saying, "...if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side." and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation so jesus when he looked over the city of jerusalem and saw all those people and no the overwhelming majority of them would they knew that he knew that they would reject him as savior and as the messiah And so it caused him to be sad and it caused him to weep because he said, you didn't know the things that bring for peace or the things that if you would turn to me, you could have peace in your heart and uh, your life could be forever changed. Now, the reason I mention Annunciation Day and Palm Sunday in the introduction of this sermon is to say that on the first illustration, Gabriel said to Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Savior who is to come into the world. And you fast forward 33 years later, and Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as the Savior of the world, coming to that city to ultimately die on that cross to pay for our sins. And so we, when we think about Annunciation Day and when we think about Palm Sunday, we obviously ask this question, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Well, the first answer, obviously, is that Jesus came to save us from our sins. In fact, in Luke 19, the chapter we're just looking in, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. Say that with me. To seek and to save the lost. So Jesus came from heaven to earth on a rescue mission. To save all of us who are lost or were lost in our sins, to forgive us for those sins, to come to live in our heart, and to make it possible for us to go to heaven when we die. But that's not the only reason Jesus came. Turn a few pages to the right to the Gospel of John, chapter number 10. And this is a familiar verse. We quote it often. But in John chapter 10, I want you to look at the second half of verse number 10. And Jesus gives us another reason He came. He didn't just come to take us to heaven, although that's the most important thing. He also came so that we could experience a victorious, overcoming, abundant life here and now. John 10, the second half of verse 10, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And so Jesus came to give us the abundant life. Now, I preached on this back in January on a Sunday night, a whole sermon on the abundant life. And in that sermon, I described what this life is. The Greek word here for abundant life is the word zoe. And it has with it the idea of spiritual life. And it's not just physical life, it's spiritual life, and that's what Jesus came to give us. It is an overcoming life. It is a life that is filled with joy, with peace, with purpose, with meaning, with enthusiasm, with excitement. And so I thought tonight it might be a good idea for us as we get ready for Palm Sunday, and then especially as we get ready for Easter, and we're thinking about the, the death in burial and resurrection of Jesus but we're thinking beyond that and asking ourselves why did he do that he did it so that we could be saved and he did it so that we could experience a victorious life here and now and so here is a very simple question and it'll be a very simple sermon tonight don't answer it out loud but answer it to yourself are you experiencing the abundant life I mean here we are a few days before Palm Sunday and not long before Easter. And we do need to pause and ask ourselves that question. If, if you were scoring on a scale from 1 to 10, your life, 1 being spiritually dry and you're just kind of in a low season, 10, you've never been this close to God and you've never been enjoying life as much as you are right now, what score would you give yourself? Well, I don't know. What score you might give. I'm not sure what score I might give myself. But it's a good question nonetheless. Are we experiencing the kind of life that Jesus came and died on that cross so that we could have? If you think about it from a practical perspective. It would be a shame for Jesus to have done everything that he did. In the suffering and the crucifixion and all that he went through. To make our salvation possible and to make the abundant life possible. It would be a shame. And then for him to have gone back to heaven and he seated the Father's right hand, having given us the Holy Spirit, everything we need to live a victorious life, it would be a shame for us to say on a scale from one to ten, I'm a two or a three or a four or a five, when Jesus has said, I've made it possible for it to be a ten. It may not be a 10 every day, some days it may be an 8 or a 9, or some days it may be a 7, and some days it may be a 2 or a 3, but I think it would be a shame for us to live as Christians our entire Christian life and say, you know what, I never really got above a 5. I never consistently got to that six or seven and certainly never got to eight or nine. And I don't even think I ever had a day where I was at a 10. I think it'd be a real shame because Jesus has made it possible. In fact, he said here, I have come. Now, when he said I've come, what's he saying? I've come to this earth. I left heaven. I became a baby. I grew up as a, as a young boy and then a teenager and I was a man. And I went through everything the human race goes through. All the physical problems people have, Jesus said, I know, I've, I experienced some of those. The, the, every temptation that people ever have, Jesus said, I faced those temptations, and I, 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 I had victory over them, and now I've, I've come to live in you, in the person of my spirit, and I, I've made it possible for you to have the abundant life. In fact, if you'll go to Romans chapter 8, I'll show you another great verse as we think about this, and verse number 32, Romans 8, 32. Paul is talking about how God has given us everything that we need to live an abundant, happy life. And he says, he who did not spare his own son. In other words, God gave us Jesus, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so what, God, what Paul is saying, if God gave us Jesus do you think he's going to hold back anything that you would need to live an abundant life? I mean, if he was going to hold back something, he would have held back Jesus. But once he gave Jesus, he's certainly not going to hold back anything else that we would need to live an abundant and a happy life. Now, as I have thought today about how to try to make this point clear and get us to thinking in the right direction so that when Palm Sunday gets here and next Thursday night, Maundy Thursday, Lord's Supper gets here and certainly when Easter gets here, that we could walk in this room and say, you know what, I may not be at a 10. I may not be experiencing the abundant life as much as I could. But if I was a 3 or a 4 that night John preached that sermon, I believe I'm a 7 or an 8 now. I'm moving to a 9. I may be at a 10 before long. I think if we could just be moving in that general direction, it would be a good thing. Now, to get you to thinking visually tonight, in the Old Testament... You know that the children of Israel lived in Egypt for over 400 years. You know that story, how they ended up there, and they lived in bondage. Pharaoh treated them badly. They were overworked. They were underpaid. They were slaves in Egypt. And after 430 years, Moses was used by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and to begin leading them to the promised land. So they were coming out of bondage, and they were being led now into the promised land. Now, for us to really get into this, go back to the book of Deuteronomy, because as I've studied this today, it's been interesting to me, and I hope it'll be an interesting thing uh, to you. But in Deuteronomy chapter number 1, I want you to see a verse you may have never marked. You may have never noticed it. I don't think I had noticed this verse until in the fairly recent past. Never paid much attention to it anyway. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse number 2. And the children of Israel at this time have just left Egypt. They've been in the wilderness for a little bit of time and they're headed to the promised land. But notice what it says. It is 11 days journey from Horeb. Now Horeb, Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the mountain of God. It's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, Kadesh Barnea was on, it was was just almost in the Promised Land. When you got to Kadesh Barnea, you were on the southern part of the Promised Land. So you were just almost there. And what the Bible says is from Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, to the promised land, to the border of it there. It's an 11-day journey. And so when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God's looking down and God's thinking to himself, it should take them 11 days to get from the wilderness into the promised land. Less than two weeks. You know how long it took them, right? It took them 40 years. 430 years in Egypt. 40 years in the wilderness. And in fact, many of those people never made it into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb did of that generation, but nobody else did. It was their kids who made it in. And then finally, the younger group under Joshua made it into the promised land. Now, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just kind of laying a foundation, then we'll come back to our question, trying to figure out, on a scale from 1 to 10, how close am I to the abundant life? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Six. And in verse number 23, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love prepositions. And this verse does an excellent job with two prepositions. It says, Deuteronomy six twenty-three. Then he brought us out from there, talking about from Egypt, that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Now, now listen to this. He brought us out. That he might bring us in. Say that with me. He brought us out that he might bring us in. Say it by yourselves. Now if you're saved, and I think most people here tonight are saved, let's per- put that in the singular and say he brought me out that he might bring me in. you really say it. He brought me out that he might bring me in. You say, well I've never been to Egypt. He hadn't brought me out of Egypt. Well, stay with the metaphor. Stay with the picture here. In the Bible, Egypt, represents your life before you got saved. It is a place of bondage. It is a place of oppression. Pharaoh is a picture of the devil. And just like Pharaoh kept those Israelites in bondage, the devil, before you got saved, had you in bondage. Now, who knows what your bondage may have been? For some people, it's drugs and alcohol and sex. And for other people, it's... uh, it's something else, but for all of us, it's sin on some kind. Before we got saved, we were not free in Christ. We were living in bondage. Now, Canaan over here, some, somebody said, what does Canaan represent? Canaan must represent heaven. And in fact, some of the songs that, that we've all grown up singing that are pretty songs kind of picture Canaan as heaven. On, Jordan, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye and so on. And we get thinking that, you know, I'm bound for the promised land and, and who will come and go with me? I'm bound. And we kind of get to thinking, well, the promised land, Canaan, that must be a picture of heaven. But it's not a picture of heaven. Think about what happened in the promised land. Well, for one thing, there were giants that had to be defeated. There are no giants in heaven that we're going to have to defeat. There were battles and wars in the promised land. There are not going to be any battles and wars uh, in, in, uh, in heaven. There was death. People died in the promised land. They had funerals all the time. We're not going to have any death in heaven. And so Canaan... Is, it's described in the Bible as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's just beautiful. It, it says it's a land of hills and valleys. It's, it's beautiful land. Pomegranates and figs and all these great f- fruit, uh, fruits and foods and all the, the sites and, and its abundance in, in water. It's just beautiful. And so Canaan is not a picture of heaven when we die. Canaan is a picture of the abundant life here and now. Now, the verse says God brought us out that he might bring us in. He brought us out of bondage and oppression and our lost condition that he might bring us in To the promised land, the place of abundance, the place of victory, the place of overcoming, the place where we're at rest. Doesn't mean we don't have problems and challenges. They had problems and challenges in the promised land. You had the Canaanites and the Girgashites and all these different ites, and they had to battle with them. But once they were in the promised land, it was a place of victory. Now, here's what's interesting. Between Egypt and the promised land was this wilderness, God thought it should take 11, 12, 13, 14 days. They may have already traveled about three days before they got to Mount Horeb. So the whole trip, God's probably thinking this should take them about two weeks. And yet it took them 40 years. Now here's what I know. Every one of us here tonight is in one of those three locations. You are either in Egypt, you are in the wilderness, or you're in the promised land. Now here's what I would say to you. If you're in Egypt... What you need to do tonight is get saved. If you're in the promised land, you say, John, I'm over here about an 8 or a 9 or maybe even a 10. I think I'm having the abundant life, man. I'm just at peace with God. I just, You know what I would say to you? Keep doing whatever you're doing. And let me know after the service what you're doing because I want to get deeper into it myself. So I would say keep doing it. But if you're in the wilderness tonight, listen to some of the descriptions as I prepared this today. That I, I've, I, I, I wrote these down to describe what the wilderness is like. It is a place of testing and it is a place of difficulty. It is a place of struggle and agony. I'm talking about spiritual struggle now, not just problems, but I'm talking about in your heart. You have a, it's a place of fear. It's a place of failure. It's a place of doubt. Place of unbelief. It's a place of complaining. One of the things that the Israelites did in that wilderness was they complained. All the time they're complaining. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. And it's a place of disobedience. It's a place a lot of people in the wilderness, they the reason they didn't make it in the promised land was because of their own disobedience. And so we're all in one of those places tonight. You're either in Egypt, you're in the promised land or you're in the wilderness. Now again, if you're in Egypt, you need to get saved. If you're in the promised land, you need to keep doing what you're doing. But if you're in the wilderness, I can say some things to you tonight that I think will help you to move through the wilderness and to, at least tonight, I can point you in the direction of the promised land and help you get to that place of abundance, joy, and peace that God wants for you to have. And so what I've done tonight in your outline, we've printed six things that you can do, I think we've said it like this, how to make it through those wilderness times. And I want to mention six things tonight that you can do to make it through those wilderness times in your life. you You still listening? Say amen. Are you anticipating this? Number one, and you would expect me to say this, but I'm, I'm saying it anyway because it is number one. Remember that God is in control and that what you are going through is part of His plan for your life. I want to say that again. You're in the wilderness tonight, and you say, John, I'm not, I'm not having that 8, 9, or 10 of the abundant life. I'm struggling, man. I've got some fear and failure, and I'm discouraged. I'm complaining, and I'm not happy. Well, whatever you're facing that has caused you to feel that way, What the Scripture teaches us is that that God is in control and that what you're going through is part of His plan for your life. Now, it may not be part of His perfect plan for your life. I talked about Vanessa earlier having cancer. Cancer is not part of God's perfect plan. But she got cancer. What do we say about that? We have to at least say since God is sovereign, He allowed her to get cancer. And so I think it is just wise, whatever we go through in life, that the, Whatever it is, the first thing we have to say is, God is in control. I can remember years ago hearing a pastor, Charles Stanley, who I was listening to one night. And he was talking about a time in his life when he first became the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta. And it was a very tumultuous time in the church. And there was a group, a large group of people in the church who turned against him. And they did everything they could to try to discredit him to try to prevent him from becoming the pastor. And then after he became the pastor, they tried to undermine him and and they tried to hurt the church. And it was just, it's an amazing, if you've ever read him, any of the things he's written about that, it's almost unthinkable how something like that would happen. His first Sunday as pastor, a group of 300, just to give you one example, a group of 300 people had got together and said today to make a statement when Dr. Stanley finishes his sermon and gives the invitation and invites people to come forward, as an act of protest, let's walk out the back door. And 300 people walked out the back door when he was asking people to come down the front. It was just a a horrible time in his life. And one day, there was an, an elderly lady in this church, and she had been inviting Dr. Stanley to come by her house and visit with her. And he wanted to come, but he was just always so busy preparing the next sermon that he just never had time, and she just kept asking, and finally he just said, well, I'm going to just go and visit this lady. So he went by one day, and she was probably well up in her 80s or maybe in her 90s, and, and she said, Dr. Stanley, I appreciate you coming by to visit with me today, but I just wanted, I don't need you to do anything for me. She said, I know what's happening at the church, and she said, I just want to encourage you. And, and she said, I want to show you a picture. And she had a picture in her house of Daniel in the lion's den. And she said, I want you to look at that picture. And here's Daniel, and he's in the lion's den. And, and he, she said, I want you to tell me everything you see in that picture. And she, he said, well, I see Daniel there, and I see the lions, and they're, you know, intimidating. And I see the place where he is is kind of dark, and the, there's a hole at the top where they dropped him down. And he, he was telling everything he saw. And... He couldn't think of anything else to say. And she said, Dr. Stanley, you've missed the most important part of the picture. And he said, well, what is it I've missed? She said, you have failed to see that, Dr. Stan- that Daniel is not focusing on the lions. Daniel's focusing on God. And he said, that, I think that was one of the experiences that led him to this discovery, that at least in part, God spoke to him and said, Charles... With everything you're going through in this church, people are talking about you. People are walking out on you. People, I mean, it's a bad, this was back in the, in the 70s. He said, God said this to him, everything that happens to you, you have to receive it as though it came from me. And Dr. Stanley thought, and he was praying, he thought, well, God, this didn't come from you. You're not causing people to act like this. You're not causing people to come up on the platform during the service and punch me and hit me. And God said, no, I'm not causing it, but I'm allowing it. And you have to receive it. as coming from me. Now, I heard that story probably 20 years ago, and I never have forgotten it. Why? Because I think it is so very helpful in life. Whatever we go through, if we really believe that God is in control... The best attitude to have is, God, you may not have caused it, but you have allowed it. And if you've allowed it, you've allowed it for a good purpose. And so, God, I'm going to receive this as though it is coming from you. And so, God, what are you wanting to teach me? How can I grow through this? You're in control. What I'm saying to you tonight is, one of the quickest ways through the wilderness is when the bottom falls out, immediately you say to yourself, God's in control. And if you'll say that and believe that, that's going to help you out. Now, let's look at the second thing. This is just as important. Remember that your part is to trust God, obey God, and love people unconditionally. That's your part. In the wilderness, all you can do is trust God and obey God and and love people unconditionally. You're not responsible for the outcome. I think so many times in life, we get in the wilderness, we've got a problem, and we think, well, I've got to fix this situation. Well, there's a lot of situations you just can't fix But what you can do is trust the Lord and obey Him and keep a good attitude toward people and love people. And if you'll do that, God's going to help you. I've learned this. And as we go through life, and especially as we have challenges, God holds us responsible for everything we can control. But God doesn't hold us responsible for anything that is beyond our control. And so just focus on what you can control, and that is trusting and obeying God. Number three, remember that this too shall pass. This too shall pass. What you're going through not going to last forever. It's going to end either here or in heaven, but it's just temporary. And, uh, and this too shall pass. Have you thought of it this way? Your trial has an expiration date on it. Let me say something even more, kind of gets your attention than that. Your life has an expiration date on it. I was thinking about this. Here we are in 2018. I wonder how many of us will still be living when the ball drops on New Year's Eve and it becomes 2050. I wonder how many of us will ever see 2050 well, that kind of got you scared right there, didn't it? You kind of get thinking about that. You say, I just want to live to see 2019 or 2020. Well, I do too. But I thought, I wonder, will I still be living here to see 2050? I mean, if Jesus doesn't come first, they're going to have a party in New York that night and everybody's going to be watching it on TV. But whether we'll be here to to watch that or not, only God knows. But the point is, hey folks, we're just passing through. And our lives have an expiration date, and our problems have an expiration date. So whatever we're facing, we're not going to have to face it forever. Number four thing that we can do that is so very important. Resist the temptation to complain. That was something that the Israelites failed to do. They complained and complained and complained. But resist the temptation to complain. Number five, surround yourself with encouragers, with people who love you, and whose faith is stronger than yours. I think that's one of the things that we need in the wilderness. We need some encouragers. I mean, when we're down, we need somebody to help lift us up. When I go back to East Texas this weekend to preach, one of the people I hope to see is a man named Doug Evans. He was my, one of my football coaches when I was a kid growing up. and He coached me. I started playing football in seventh grade. He coached me in seventh grade and eighth grade. And then when I went to high school, he got promoted and he became uh, the ninth grade football coach. So when I was in ninth grade, it was his third year to coach me. And we had a very close relationship. One night, we were playing a ball game and on a Thursday night in Kilgore. If you're familiar with East Texas, you know where Kilgore is. And we were on about the two-yard line getting ready to run in. I know, I'm back telling one of my high school stories. I know, I know. I can't. I'm living in the past. I've told you before, I would have played collegiately if I'd only been bigger, faster, stronger, and better. That's the only thing holding me back. But he called a play. I was the fullback. I think it was 31 Pop was the name of that play, where you just go left of the center. You do your hands like that. The quarterback gives you the ball. We we're on the two-yard line. 31 Pop. That's coming to me. And I ran up there and took the ball from the quarterback. And one of those guys from Kilgore hit me. And I fumbled the ball. And they got it. And I've never been as dejected in my life as I was that night. Now, here I am on the, going into the end zone, and I fumbled the ball. I came off the field, and I was down. And, and Coach Evans kind of, you know, I, I can't say this bombard about him on Sunday because he'll be sitting out there, but he, he kind of let me know that I messed up, you know. And, uh, and it made me more down. And all weekend I was down. At church on Sunday I was down. I went to school on Monday I was down. At football practice Monday afternoon I was down. I just wasn't myself, and after the practice, we were all headed to the locker room, take a shower and go home, and Coach Evans had been watching me all during practice, and uh, I was kind of walking back into the locker room. He said, John, come here a second. I thought, man, he let me have it again for fumbling that ball. (laughs) He said, uh, I've been watching you in practice today. You're not yourself. What's wrong with you? I said, oh, nothing. You know, when you're a 14-year-old guy, you're just not going to get too open about your emotions, right? When, I said, he said, what's wrong with you? I said, oh, no, no nothing wrong, nothing's wrong. He said, no, what's wrong with you? You're not yourself. He said, are you still upset about fumbling that ball last Thursday night in Kilgore? I said, well, maybe, maybe so. He said, let's sit down here for a second. We sit down. I can still see it in my mind. I was 14 years old. This, story, this happened almost 34 years ago. And he said, you know, John, he said, maybe this is a, is a good lesson for you in life. I said, what do you mean? I fumbled the ball before I made a touchdown. What's good about that? He said, well, in life, sometimes we all fumble. And he said, what I want you to see is the season ain't over. And he said, in fact, the next game, I'm going to call 31 pop again. And you're going to run the same play. And you ain't going to fumble next time. And he kind of began to lift my spirits up. You know, as I say, it's been almost 34 years since that story took. I don't, remember, I don't even remember if we won the game in Kilgore. I don't remember who we played the next week. I don't even remember if I ran the ball. I don't remember anything. The only thing I remember is a coach sitting down with me and saying to me, John, sometimes in life we all fumble, but that doesn't mean the season's over. We have to get up, and we have to move on, and we have to have the next play, and we have to have the next game. And he encouraged me back to a place of, of, of normality and happiness and so on. And what I'm saying is all of us in our lives, we need some encouragers, some people who, who love us and who's, who have faith in us and whose faith in God is even stronger than our own. And then the last thing I would say is this, and I think this is so very important keep moving forward. You're in the wilderness. Something is frustrating you or discouraging you. Keep moving forward one day at a time. Never give up. The best is yet to be. And so that's what, that I would, you know, my hope for you tonight is if you're if you're in that wilderness, that you would just, that you would just, that you would just keep moving forward. That, that you would just, you know, you, you, that you, if you're at a 3 or a 4 or a 5 or a 6 on the scale from 1 to 10, that you would just say, I'm not going to be satisfied to stay here. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to ask God to get me into that promised land, to give me the peace and the abundance and the joy and everything that he wants me to have. And I, I believe if you'll keep moving forward, that God will get you to that place. Amen. So, Father, I thank you tonight that as we think about your birth, as we think about your death, Lord, we think about why you came. You came that we might be saved, and you came that we might have the abundant life. Father, I pray for people listening tonight who, if they were honest, would say, I know I'm saved, but I'm not in the promised land, at least not tonight. I'm not having that joy and that peace. God, would you take something that has been said tonight, maybe just one of these things, and point them in the direction of the good land that that you have for them to enjoy. Now, it may be tonight that you haven't even made it to the wilderness yet. You're still back here in Egypt. You haven't come out. You haven't been saved. You haven't received Jesus. You haven't had His blood applied to your sins, like they put the blood over the doorpost. You haven't had the blood of Jesus placed on your heart. Tonight, would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, I ask you now to come into my heart, to forgive my sins. Make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be. And Lord, during this next song, give me the courage to make it. In your name I pray and all the people said amen and amen.